Hello and welcome to the Six Sales Podcast. This is Mike Nicholson from Six Sales. Uh, we're coming to you from the Leadscale offices today and their swanky new podcast studio for the very first time. When I started this podcast probably nearly three years ago now, it was essentially recorded during um, lockdown uh, on Zoom uh, and over the internet. And this is the very first in real life podcast I have recorded. So very exciting. I'm very excited to welcome Karen Nelson-Field from Amplified Intelligence for this inaugural in real life podcast. Karen, welcome. Thank you. I feel privileged. Me too. I'm very excited. And um, it's it's audio only as you'll be hearing right now, but um, hopefully we'll be able to uh, move it into video um, in the near future. So um, to kick us off, Karen, um, you, you um, Amplified Intelligence released a, a presentation recently. I believe you might be talking about it in Cannes, um, um, or talking through it in Cannes anyway. And um, it talked about attention decay, um, and I was I was really interested in that um, that as a theory. So you talk about um, in, in slightly separate data, but you talk about um, each ad format as having a floor and a ceiling of possible attention. So um, to give an example, if there was just a white space and there was no creative whatsoever, it would still get, let's say, 0.1 seconds of attention because it's there, like there's, there's just a gap there. And if you put the best creative in the world in it, it might get four seconds of attention. And so there's a floor and a ceiling that any given ad format on any given platform might be able to deliver you. Um, but you talked in this presentation about uh, attention decay, and I wondered if you could maybe expand a little bit about what that is, please. Yeah, so there's two concepts that you've just talked about. They are related, but they're separate. So attention decay is literally why not all reach is equal. So every single um, ad view, the way that humans interact with them typically is that they pay a reasonable amount of attention in the first split second and then the level of decay thereafter varies depending on the platform and the format and the context, right? So decay is essentially the concept of humans failing to pay attention over time. So if you think about it as a distribution, that's one thing. The problem we face as an industry is there's huge flow-on effects with those decays because it means that reach-based volume isn't what you think it is. So the reason why not a reach is equal is because every single demographic context, format, platform, country, there's thousands and thousands of these decays. And that's what's important to improve, to, to bring reach back to being equal, right? So that's one thing. But what these decay, what, what this decay does is to the second point is it defines what we call attention elastic limits, so attention elasticity. So because these decays are largely defined by the nuance of the platform in terms of the functionality, humans kind of operate around these, these boundaries. And so if you're, if you're given the option to scroll, you will. If you don't have to have sound on, you won't. So the nature of the platform defines how much attention you will pay which essentially kind of calls to how quickly you'll decay. Now, the attention elasticity piece is, to your point, the floor and the ceiling of how much attention a platform or a format is capable of achieving. So to get it, it's kind yeah. of related, but they're two separate things. So one is an outcome of the decay. Yeah. One is how then does creative fit into those boundaries. Okay, so if we were to try and paint a picture of what a fast decay environment might look like versus a slow decay, um, what would you say, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but cinema, for example, um, would 
probably be quite slow decay because you're in a dark room with a massive screen. You've got to turn your mobile phone yeah. off. There's limited distractions. Yeah, so that's actually a really good point. So, so I like to put a line right in the middle and there's thousands on one side and thousands on the other, right? So, But the way to think about it is literally pictorially. So fast decay is when, you know, in second one, there's 90% of the people that see it, watch it avidly. And then, as I said, the decay kind of drops off quite steeply and sharply like a, a reverse kind of J shape, if you like. Whereas slow decay is when you pretty much pay, it, it's never full attention typically, but it's at a point where you pretty much watch fairly steadily from one end to the other. So you get the same amount of attention from your reach that you've bought at one end that you do the other. That's the opposite of fast decay. Now, fast decay is typically triggered by distraction. So anything that can scroll fast or you can skip fast or there's clutter around you or if you think about it in that way, that's what causes you to be distracted. Whereas slow decay is typically when there's less distractions around you. So you spoke to cinema. That's a classic example of you can't dual screen. You you can't speak to your friends. You get in trouble, you know, and and it's dark and you're locked in. So, so if you think about that as the extreme, highly cluttered general web on one end that you can scroll away from versus, you know, locked in a room, immersive, you can't talk to your friends because the fun police will tell you off is the other. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. There's also probably, I mean, it's one of the same thing in some ways, but there's also probably a context of the consumer as well, right? Is, or the or the viewer, should we call them? Um, so the platform dictates a lot of that. As you say, if you can scroll away or if you can click past or you can turn the sound off, that's one thing, but also it's understanding what is the consumer doing at that particular point. And if there's, they're rushing around trying to find uh, what's the weather going to be like, and then finding out what flights they need to get to Cannes, topical for now, uh, and all the rest of it. They're probably moving around pretty quickly and not necessarily um, in, in, a, in a sort of mindset where they can sort of take stuff in, whereas if they're in the cinema, just to use that example again, then they're there for a couple of hours. They've kind of signed that time off as a bit of me time. Yeah, I mean, I try and talk about it in fairly one-dimensional concepts, but to your point, there are underneath those decay curves, then there's clusters of humans that have different lives, right? Interestingly, they're predictable. So there's only around kind of six, seven, eight different types. But underneath these averages, there are people that are super busy and running around and so their attention is slightly different or quite different to someone that has decided that they're on a bus and they're going to scroll through their feed because they're bored, right? So, mm. so so, when we talk about averages, if you actually understand the data, there's a lot more nuance underneath it. But to keep it nice and easy and simple for people to understand, we stick to the slow fast. Um, but, yes, to your point, the the mindset or the, the way that your life is right at that moment defines it still is restricted by the boundaries of the platform but there's extra nuance around it. There's a there's a distribution curve under a distribution curve, if you like. Got it, yeah. So attention is obviously quite important, and for some creative, um, fast, um, fast decay might be okay, depending on what they're trying to do, how long it takes to consume the message, right? And for, for other creative, they might need a little bit longer to tell a story. Um, but um, I remember seeing, um, again, some, some data that you 
the, the released Amplified Intelligence that said that um, memory or recall of an ad starts at about 2.5 seconds of attention and then goes up fairly sharply with every additional second of attention that happens after that. Could you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, so firstly, it's recall and memory, the way that we collect is very different. So I don't believe in recall as a metric of memory because often recall is related to your purchase experiences. So memory, the way that we define it is around understanding um, sort of a mental availability perspective. So being able to choose a brand that – so being able to to remember or think about a brand that represents a certain category entry point, it's a bit complicated. Just to, for the listeners, though, it's definitely not recall. Okay. Um, but to your point around two and a half seconds, it's a, it's a bit of a line in the sand, right, because if you're Coke, that time is less because you have significant distinctive assets that you've built over 100 years. If you're a new brand, you're – your time scale will be longer because you don't have anything that you're aligned to from a from a distinctive asset perspective or you're not aligned to a certain category entry point like you know de beers are to engagement if you like so so it kind of depends but the, it it's sort of the sweet spot is about 2 to 2 and a half seconds okay um, and you mentioned there, like if you're a brand new brand, you might need more and if you're coke it's it's essentially a nudge right um, so Correct. um different different requirements of attention depending on what you're trying to do and who you are. Yeah, and I mean I often get, you know, I won't say ridiculed but maybe, you know, criticism over the simple way that I try to describe it. But if if I actually explained so it's not a perfectly linear relationship and it's not no. and I haven't said this forever but, you know, it's not always more time is better. It's just when we are, you know, I mean I've been part of this trying to build a category for about seven years now, you have to get these concepts in a nice bite-sized easy way for people to understand yeah. to then unpack the nuance around it yeah no I, and I agree with that and I think I, I think I've spoken to you about this before as well as in fact I think on the first podcast that you're on um, with um, Lisa from Twitter and um, JP from MGOMD I, I wanted to know how much attention is enough and you say oh that's a nice easy one to start and I know that it's not a simple question but I think you have to have what you've got that line in the sand and that that kind of um, range so people can start to understand it because it's a completely new concept that we haven't used. Yeah, so, so call out so. to JP actually and, you know, OMG. Um, but where they're amazing is that they'll, they've kind of got it, that there's nuances. So what they do is they work backwards from their clients and work out how much attention do you think we need given their campaign, you know, what is it they're trying to achieve from a, the size of their brand and then work backwards um, and I think that's the smartest way rather than someone in a audience vendor position saying this is what's correct because the the agency and the client knows best what they need to achieve. Yeah. Well, that, that leads nicely onto a question that, that I wanted to sort of dig into with you actually is um, when we think of, a, if we think about the creative uh, for a moment, when we think about video creative like pre-roll or whatever, mid-roll, we think about how long it is. So how long does it take to get from the start to the finish? Um, and when we fin think about display advertising, whether that be an MPU or a banner, we don't always, or I certainly have not in my 25 plus years working in media, heard anyone say this is a three second MPU, other than if it's got a rotation in it in terms of it runs for a second and a half and then it switches to, to another creative. But we know from um, the work that you've been doing and others um, that certain ad formats on certain platforms have that floor 
and ceiling of attention that is possible therefore we should perhaps be talking more about perhaps this is what you're saying that JP is doing it and the team at MGMD is thinking about how long does it take to deliver the message and there, therefore where do we need to then buy that that uh, that media because if you've got a, a um, an ad that takes five seconds to deliver the basic message but you put it in a in a format that's never got more than two seconds of attention there's obviously going to be a, a disconnect there right I love that to be honest and I'm going to quote you in the future because you know when I was growing up or when I you know was early in my media days it's column centimeters and you get what you get and that's how much you buy and it's real today. Impressions are so flawed that you don't know what you're getting. So, to, you know, if if we're ever going to make a change to force publishers to sell against the reality of the attention, I love it. I think that's an excellent way to build transparency into our industry because then you get what you get. Everything has a place and a role, but there's none of this, you know, wastage that's happening in the market at the moment in terms of being able to stuff you know, a 20 second into a spot that you better, you won't get more than three. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I suppose the danger or the downside to that, just thinking out loud and this might, might, might go horribly wrong. Cause when you think out loud, it's, um, you know, could go either way, but if you're Coke and you only need a second of attention, let's say, or less than that, you only need half a second of attention. It could be that your media buying is a lot cheaper because you're using inventory that you, that doesn't yes. get three seconds of so, attention. So you're 100% right. But then on, on top of that, what's happening at the moment is, so, so that's making the assumption that the the mental availability is established because they've been market forever, right? So the problem you face with that thinking is you've got this whole new generation. I mean, I know you might think that everyone knows who Coke is, but I'm sure you know, not every five-year-old does, for example. So what I do see a lot of big brands making the mistake of now is they go, right, well, you know, we're big restaurants or big brands, so we don't have to worry. We just have to be present on TikTok, for example, or not, and not worry about building our distinctive assets. And there's a whole new generation of people that don't grow up with a 30-second ad on TV that don't understand that, you know, this colour or this particular asset goes with that particular brand. So so I, I, I hear you and I think one second, two seconds for refreshing is great on the proviso that those distinctive assets are continuously built upon yeah. on the other end of the spectrum. But yeah, and I, and I agree with you there, but, but I think that the, the potential downside is that media could become cheaper for bigger brands and it could be more expensive for smaller brands. There's always been that, that 100%. Yeah. 100%. And what's what's... What's interesting is it works the other way. So I did some work and worked through that, you know, the the smaller brands that can ill afford the bigger media, if you use those words, are suffering twice on the smaller platforms, mm. right? So so small brands suffer twice when they can't afford the more expensive quality media and just choose to perform or put their ads on performance-based, but they're actually being hit doubly in terms of the lack of return on investment. So there's a whole nother paper in that. It's um, a yeah. really interesting one. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so we're talking about attention today, but there's, there's I, I think there's three um, metrics that are thrown around by some people interchangeably and they are very different. And um, I'd love to get your take on 
how you define these three metrics and how you think that they play together. So we have viewability, which has been around for a lot longer than attention just because of the technology uh, and it's kind of a live um, feed. We have time in view, um, so how long was it possible to see this ad, I would, I would say. And then we have actually active and passive attention. So how should we be thinking about those? How do you think about those as metrics and how do they work together? How should people be thinking about them so in tandem? Let me be clear. Time in view is the Achilles heel of modern measurement because time in view is what we trade on. Viewability is a commoditized version of time in view plus size of the ad, right? But if you think about the input variable to time to viewability, it's time in view. So time in view was the, the, the moment everything changed was when we decided not to get you know, what I call outward-facing data or census data from humans, and we decided we needed a scalable data, we needed scalable measurement, so let's pick time and view as the core. So, so time and view is the thing that fails us because its relationship to actual attention, if you're lucky, is one in three, right, if you're lucky. And that relationship changes on every platform and every format. So, so just for the listeners, viewability is a del- – is 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 a way to verify that the ad was delivered but it has zero relationship to whether it was seen or not but at the same time I don't blame viewability for the position we're in I blame time in view what concerns me at the moment is there's a lot of vendors jumping into this space which are saying viewability is rubbish blah blah blah, blah. but actually they're using the same variable to build proxy indicators for attention, right? So when you use time in view as the principal metric um, in any model, it will eventually, well, it will fail. It will fail. So, so, so what I need to kind of get out to the industry, it's not the viewability is wrong, is that it picked the wrong horse to start with, if you like, which is time in view. So time in view is the Achilles heel of our industry. Right. So you said there's zero correlation. So Pretty much across the board, if you look at the two things, that you, you don't see the longer the time in view tends to correlate with higher attention at all. That there's just no correlation there. It is, but it's not that one's driving the other. Right. Correlation's pretty weak way to look at it either, because one isn't driving the other. It's just so, so you can't. I mean, if you've got, if you've got. It, it, there's a bit of a depends is is the short answer. So the, the point three is what I usually quote as a relationship. So it's, you know, one in three chance that, yes, if there's longer time in view, someone will be watching, but it certainly won't be at the capacity of reach that you think, if that okay. makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So, so focusing on attention now then and not viewability or time of view, how widespread today, uh, 2023, uh, what month are we in June? Um, how widespread are the use of attention metrics today uh, in planning ad campaigns? You mentioned uh, JP and MGMD there. Um, and how are they specifically being used um, in your experience? And how do you see that evolving as, um, as we get better at it? Yeah. I mean, can I step back, yeah, Tiny, just a little bit, just back to this whole concept of time? So... When I've just described to you that time in view isn't an is not a good variable to build proxies on, what is hap- what what is important is that time is still a fundamental way that we we plan and buy media because it's largely around ad length, 
right? So that's why it's important that attention still has a component of that, but it because you then you can actually append attention time to workflows and processes that already exist. So it is important, but getting it from the human versus getting it from the machine is the differentiator in terms of attention type, if that makes sense to you, right? Um, Now, on to your next question was how is it being implemented and how is it, you know, what what agencies are using it and and is it becoming mass? 100%. Um, I mean, the agencies generally, I mean, you know, I won't call everyone out, but there's a few in particular, a couple in particular that have been exceptional at driving awareness of the need for change. Um, and I think pretty much well, we have APIs in every one of the holding codes now. So, you know, every one of the agencies are in a place where they need this to be a part of their future. There are some that are more advanced than others. Um, but, you know, I, I'm very grateful for agencies to jump in because they're the ones, you know, I mean, I've had a loud voice, but it hasn't been a single loud voice. They're the ones that have driven the industry change, not me i've just explained to them how it works so i i am grateful for their for their um involvement and it's now you know rolling into publishers it's rolling into consultancies it's rolling on to brands so it's well and truly entrenched this next kind of 12 months is going to be vital to make sure that we it's a bit like you know LLMs are what they're going through at the moment and saying, you know, it's great technology, but we need some standards around it. That's what's happening at the moment in the industry through ARF and IAB USA. So I'm looking forward to seeing how um, particularly the ARF kind of codify and define the standards around this and how that flows onto MRC. So something that I'm that I'm quite interested in, and, and I don't know if there's any data around this, is... Do bigger brands, um, aka more familiar brands, tend to get more attention than completely new brands, or is is that just a um, wishful thinking? There's not enough evidence, but my educated hypothesis would suggest no. So familiarity often breeds distraction, not attention. Right. Right. So if you are super familiar with something, you won't listen to it again because you've read it or you've seen it or you've heard it. Um, so, um, big brands, as much as they do have some, you know, they've got some double jeopardy flip side nuances in a good way. They get more people that buy them more often. They also have to work hard to be noticed because, I mean, they use distinct paper. Yeah. And that's why passive attention is important for them because, you know, it's, you don't actually have to look at it to know who they are. So, so big brands just don't, you know, they, they don't want to forget that there is this new generation of people that they still have to teach, if you like. Um, so I think the answer is I agree with you, but we're all sort of working out how that then fits into how much attention is enough for them depending on the customers that they are trying to reach. Okay. And if we take that across to social media, and um, everything we've been talking about so far is essentially paid media, right? We're talking about advertising, paid media. But there's an element of organic media from both brands and people on social media. Have you ever done any studies that have looked at how attention um, is different, um, perhaps, between organic, um, someone that you follow, somebody that you've chosen to follow, somebody that's posting 
organically versus paid media? Have you, have you done anything yeah, in that so space? Yeah, so a couple of things. Firstly, this is why proxies don't work, right? Because proxies are based on signals or indicators of attention that might be things like time in view and know size of the ad and etc cetera, etc cetera. but then you add that nuance and everything changes right so the short answer is there's not enough human data to answer that I know that I would expect there would be much more attention I mean we see that to some degree in the TikTok um, feed in that that is by default more user generated and organic but from an influencer perspective the reason why there's not enough is because getting a sample that all follow Justin Bieber or Kim Kardashian or whoever the influencer of makeup is at the day is hard to do. So it's so so getting the way that we collect data across all of the different platforms is you might recruit 2,000, 3,000 people. But those 3,000 people, there's probably not even one crossover of an influencer. So it's you've got to go in to try and find influencers of a single to find followers of single influencers to get enough data and that's the hard part. Okay. But that's a classic example why proxies don't work because they would just make the same assumptions without including the human take on it and the involvement and the connection and the loyalty to the influencer is much different yeah. than typical ads. Yeah, for sure. Um, you mentioned um, um, passive attention being um, so important to big brands. For that, for that reason, it's harder to get attention when everyone thinks they already know what you're saying. Um, could you explain a little bit about active and passive attention and um, a specific question, I guess, once you've done that would be how sponsorship works because um, a big football fan, I go into a football stadium, there's perimeter advertising around the outside. I couldn't tell you any of the brands with Recall, which is probably one of the reasons you don't like Recall. I wouldn't be able to tell you last time I went to Liverpool, there was this brand. I could have a guess based on who the shirt sponsor was or you know who the beer sponsor is, but, but it definitely... I'm well. I say it definitely. It almost certainly had an, um, a passive attention effect on me, but just because I can't recall it. So, so maybe just to unpack all that, because I talked for a lot there and <laughs> rambled massively. Um, what is active attention? What is passive attention? And how does passive attention still have a value? Um, yeah. So what I can tell you is, I bet you bought that beer at halftime. Probably. Yeah. Or quarter time, or whatever the football thing is here. Yeah. Um, so that's the value of passive. So it nudges you, right? So you can't remember it, but you still made a sale. They still made a sale because you bought that beer. Mm. Um, so just to be clear, I didn't make up passive active attention. We also, which we don't often talk about, but it's in the market at the moment, we also um, collect non-attention, right? So there's three components of the way humans interact with stimuli. One is they're looking straight at it. One is they're near it, but they're not looking straight at it. And the other is they're not anywhere near it or looking at it at all. And that is distraction or non-attention or inattention or whatever you want to call it. We collect all three. And the reason why we did that was because in literature, that's how humans interact with the something, mm -hmm. the world, right? There's three ways you can do it. And so when we built the business, it was really important for me to be able to replicate the way that humans actually interact with things. So we collect all three. So active is when someone's looking straight at the ad. Um, now that is, you know, on a on a mobile, they're literally looking at the screen but also looking at the ad. On cinema, they're looking straight at the ad but there's no scrollability or anything like that. Passive is a little bit different with 
things that you can't scroll away from. It's when you might be dual screening. So for TV and, and cinema, et cetera, it'd be when you're dual screening. So you're around the ad, but you're not looking straight at it. For social, we define it as you're reading the feed or you're reading, you know, yeah, the feed or, or the or the actual article, but not looking at the ad directly. Mm. And then non-attention is the obvious. So in the concept of non-handheld, it is you've literally walked out of the room or, you know, the, the, the video can't, the, the computer, the camera can't see you anymore. Whereas with social and handheld devices, it's that you're, there is no way that your face or your eyes could possibly even look at the feed, let alone the ad, right? Yeah. Um, and, and again, it's a really important distinction because then what we do is we model the interplay between all three and work out how outcomes work. So, you know, we don't just go active is always better. We actually, we started there just to be able to get, I mean, we've been doing this for a lot of years now, so we really understand the nuances. So classic, you talk about, you know, Lisa from Twitter, you know, one of the pieces we'd worked with her on across multiple countries was, okay, so we might get the same active attention as our competitor, but actually we get better outcomes. And that's because there is an interplay between passive active and non-attention and how that kind of fits to outcomes. Mm. I know that was a complicated answer as well, but yeah, nice. it's it's quite methodologically deep and with the reason why we collect, why we call that. Okay. Now, you won't remember this, I'm sure, but um, about four years ago, I was sat on a sunbed in Croatia reading your book. Oh. Um, and, uh, I, no, I probably I, I don't very remember interested. that. You won't remember that bit, definitely, because <laughs> unless you were spying on me, which I very much doubt. Um, uh, but um, I had a question that we, which I wrote on LinkedIn, and you, you said, watch this space. It was, it was, I think you said it was a good question, which I was very pleased at you telling me that I, I thought of a good question. And it was, how can you measure if somebody's actually actually paying attention and let me let me explain what I mean by that so cognitively quite often I've been staring at the television and my wife and I are watching a program and I'm staring at the screen but my mind's just suddenly gone off and I'm thinking about something else and then she'll ask me a question about what just happened I'm like I actually don't know so is there any way that gaze eye tracking can figure out if the eyes are actually taking in the information or whether they're just sort of that that I know this isn't an actual thing that happens, but glazed over is this is the term we might. The call short it. answer is no. I mean, these these extra district. So so to be clear again, the reason why I chose the method I chose was because we are sitting on an industry where viewability is gold, right? And we know. So what I wanted to do was to build some sort of collection system and also measurement system that kind of was a little bit like. Um, old TV kind of return path data, which was this is how the human interacts. So, so I needed to do it at scale. What you're talking about is neuro because neuro is what, and only some of it, not all of it, is what can tell you if someone's actually processed it in their amygdala or whatever it is, right? So, yeah. so the answer is no. However, what we do see because we get billions, I mean this is the difference between neuro and what we're doing, we get billions of data points neuro gets sample of 20, right? Yeah. So what we can see is almost this little, I guess, um, so, so I talked before about attention decay curves and then there are distributions underneath that in how you interact with it. So how much switching you do. So it's kind of, um, you know, how quickly are you looking away or in and out and, you know, flatline, blah, blah, blah. We can tell from that using outcomes that we've collected as to whether you have processed it or not. Hmm. 
but it's not whether I can't tell from the camera. No. Whether you've thought about it, I didn't think it would be possible, but it's just the, the, the strange things that come to my mind. Another another thing that's just come to my mind while you're talking there, which made me smile, is can you tell what percentage of people fall asleep when they're watching the telly? Because obviously their eyes close, so um, there'd be no attention. Yeah, yeah. But so it'd be really interesting to know what that is, as I've done that so many times. I'm sure we all have. Will you do? But just to be honest with the uh, listeners, is that you know the data is collected and it's processed on the edge, so. You, there's privacy rules around. Yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't tell you if you fell asleep. No, no, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Um, so we're recording this the week before Cannes. Uh, you're going to be there. Obviously, I will be there. I'm looking forward to it. Um, do you have anything that we haven't covered today that you're expecting to have lots of uh, conversations about? And if so, uh, what, what would that look like? Well, look, I, I'll give you a little tiny preview of why I'm I've got, I've got three sessions that I'm doing, um, but one of them in particular I'm pretty excited about is um, I'm on stage with Orlando again awesome. yeah. and I'm also, so it's Orlando, Rob Britton and I. And basically what I've done, you talked about these boundaries um, and we have some creative hypotheses around, you know, within the context of attention elasticity, what type of creative can help nudge to the top and that's what we're delivering. So I can't talk about it now depending on when you... Oh, I wanted to put this out before, yeah, so yeah. maybe not. But, so um, but do come along to that one and um, we'll follow this up. Yeah. Um, but there are Who's some... Who's hosting that? Where is that being hosted? It's, it's Wakatsi in Palais. Okay. Um, so there is, there is some good news for creatives um, but, again, you know, we, and how this fits within these boundaries that we speak about. So yeah. that I'm really looking forward to. I think also the the general theme of attention now I think is moving towards adjacency currency. So I've also got a really amazing panel with Google and NBCU around quality and adjacent currencies and things like that. So that will be fun. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm very intrigued on the um, the panel you're doing with Orlando. He was on the podcast maybe six weeks ago now and he was talking about the the elements of advertising creative talking about tv advertising basically but advertising creative that gets the most attention or actually that's not strictly true that that, that are most effective yeah so, so he'll, really he'll talk about right and left brain yeah um and effectiveness of a, that so what we're doing is we're combining so we've got a single set of data that we've that's very looked, exciting yeah it's really fun that feels like another podcast for after i think so yeah awesome well karen thank you so much for being the very first guest in our in real life um edition of the Six Souls podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. You brought some account weather to London with you. Uh, look forward to catching up with you again out there. I think we're going to have a, a brief interview at some point. Maybe we should try and make Karen, sure that's after thank you so much for being on so the Six Souls podcast. You can peek about that with Orlando. Do you know what day that is off the top of your head? No, don't worry. We'll find out. We'll make that happen. Uh, Karen, thank you so much for being on, on the Six Souls podcast. Thanks for having podcast. me. Awesome. That was so good. I...